This is a book about broken people, broken politics, broken relationships, you know, broken confidences. Hello, and welcome back to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your host and the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. We've got a great episode this week. I'm speaking with Ben Terrace, a writer for the style section of the Washington Post, focused on national politics. I'm an enormous fan of Ben's work. He's one of those writers that when you see the byline, you have to drop everything that you're doing and just read it. You might recall his excellent profile of Kellyanne and George Conway, an instant classic, or one of my personal favorites, Washington's hottest club is Joe Manchin's houseboat. Ben is now out with a brilliant new book. It's called The Big Break, the gamblers, party animals, and true believers trying to win in Washington while America loses its mind. I called up Ben to discuss his book, how he gets into the homes and into the minds of his subjects, and whether Washington will ever return to normal. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me and for saying nice things about me. It makes me even <laughs> happier to be here. Of course. First off, congratulations on the reception of your new book, The Big Break. It's brilliant. It's a really entertaining read. The fanfare is well-deserved. Why don't you start by telling us what story you tried to tell with the book? Like, what is The Big Break? Sure. Well, so the title, The Big Break, refers kind of to, to two things here. It's obviously the big break that the country went through, um, you know, during kind of the Trump years and, and as Trump was running for president in, in 2015 and 2016. But it's also the, the, the breaks that um, people who are in Washington after Trump is gone are trying to get, right? They're people in search of their big break. Um, and so I really wanted to figure out um, what was what was this new Washington, right? Trump uh, had shaken everything up and everyone was like, oh my God, things are completely different than Biden came. Some people were like, oh, maybe things can go back to normal. I looked around and I wanted to figure out, you know, what was true? Were things going to go back to normal? What was normal? Uh, what was the new abnormal? And so I just wanted to, to find as many interesting characters in Washington as I could who could help me kind of profile this new city, um, you know, figure out what the new normal was. I have always, I was always fascinated during the Trump era of how Washington had changed from the days of, you know, the Obama bros who were like liberal, idealistic, young. And then you had the Trump era, which was this collection of very online based, as they might say, weirdos, sometimes grifters. And I remember there being like a lot of stories about how hard it was to date in DC at the time and what the party scene was like. How would you describe that shift? And like, what were the Trump years like in DC compared to what came before it? You know, people like to talk about Washington as feeling kind of like an occupied city during the Trump years. And that's not totally wrong. I mean, uh, it was a bunch of people who claimed to completely hate Washington. Um, it was a city that had voted very strongly against Donald Trump. And all these people came and, you know, moved not into like downtown Washington as much as, as kind of the burbs, but would come into town. And it just felt like a place that um, was hostile all the time. It's like everybody, you know, there was almost no way um, to, to exist without being in some kind of a conflict, it felt like. And Washington has this reputation of like, oh, people used to 
bicker um, publicly and then go and have drinks afterwards. And it was all kind of a game. And, and that was kind of gross in its own way, obviously, right? This performative, right. This performative yeah. city. Uh, but, you know, at least people weren't like always hating each other all the time. And it did feel like once you picked a side in, in this new Washington, like that was your team and the other team wanted nothing to do with you or in some cases like wanted to do you harm. That's like the product of, I guess, decades of politics and media pitching every next battle as a battle to the death, right? And yeah, like yeah, Trump I'm, came to power on that ethos. Exactly. Like, you know, it is a game for a lot of people, right? You kind of want to win. That's the goal. You want to win elections. You want to win legislation. You want to win, you know, uh, contracts as a, as a consultant. And so you, you play this game and you uh, up the rhetoric and eventually it's not a game anymore, right? It never really was, but eventually all these kind of things that you've been uh, whipping up result in something like January 6th or, or Donald Trump, um, you know, being president. And uh, the city just wasn't really prepared for when the stakes got that high. One fascinating figure that comes to mind is Hogan Gidley, who kind of did, you mentioned him in the book and uh, you have this good passage about him. And, and he, I feel like he sort of does embody the old Washington way of doing things. He's this consummate operator. He's tanned, well-dressed. Every time I see him, he's got a good quote, but he's also this diehard Trump defender he'll trash the media, defend Trump's election lies in public, then go for drinks with reporters and appear on MSNBC. Is that a sort of operator that you run into a lot in Washington these days? Yeah. You know, the thing about like Hogan is he definitely would hang out with the media all the time if he still could. Like he is that kind of guy who likes to just gossip and, um, right. you know, influence behind the scenes and, you know, be part of this kind of, uh, you know, this big party. But even he, I feel like, isn't hanging out with uh, the media or Democrats or, or, or whatever the same way anymore, because like, it's, it's too gross. Like, it's even too gross for, for Washington to be around <laughs> people who spend all their time being so nasty and, and sowing such discord. I'm sure there still are some people that, you know, would go out for, for dinner with, with any number of, of operatives. But it does feel uh, like a, like a bigger hurdle these days to actually mingle. You know, I went to some parties in for this book, uh, and these were parties that used to have members of the media at it or, you know, a bipartisan kind of, uh, party list. And now it's pretty much like you go to the democratic party parties, the democratic parties parties, and you go to the Republican parties parties, and there really is not a lot of overlap and there really is not a lot of press hanging out anymore. Um, and again, maybe that's like in some ways fine, because all this kind of coziness and hanging out um, behind the scenes is probably what led to this moment in some ways too, right? This is the swamp that right. Donald Trump ran against. This is the swamp that Veep was all about. This is the swamp that my book is sort of about. And so it's not like it's, oh, I'm pining for these glory days of, of when things were so much better and bipartisanship reigned supreme. You know, it wasn't a great situation then, but I'm just saying it's different now. Like you don't even have uh, the same kind of, socialization between people that you, that you used to have. Despite the expectation now of things returning to normal, you argue in this book that, that Washington is still weird. Do you think the town is just fully broken? Uh, it's pretty broken right now. I mean, one of the things that people do in Washington all the time is they make predictions about what's going to happen next and everyone's always wrong. So I, I try not to make <laughs> predictions about whether there's a permanent, you know, breaking of Washington or whether things can get fixed or whether they're going to get worse. I, I don't, I don't know. 
But I can tell you that this is a book about broken people, broken politics, broken relationships, um, you know, broken confidences. This this book, you know, I think it's different than your average Washington book because it's about people, right? This is a cast of characters. They have insane drama. They say crazy things in front of me that I couldn't believe they were saying in front of me. Uh, they have scandals that they do out in the open and scandals that are happening behind the scenes. And it's all like such a mess, right? And And I think what makes this book fun to read in some ways is it's sort of like a novel or sort of like Veep where you're laughing your way through this stuff, but it's also very dark, right? And so right. I think that the people that make up Washington are f- trying to figure it out. And I don't think anybody has right now. And so as a whole, right, this book is a profile of a city, which is made up of lots of little profiles. And I think as a whole, yeah, the place is pretty broken right now. <laughs> so I want to talk about some of those characters that you get into in the book. Let's start with Matt and Mercedes Schlapp. They're two people that I've always found really fascinating. Tell us about them and why you chose to focus on them as sort of an emblematic subject of of Washington. Yeah. uh, So um, for listeners who don't know, Matt and and Mercy Schlapp uh, are kind of diehard Trump MAGA uh, loyalists right now, but they they weren't always that way. And and the reason I wanted to spend time with them, uh, well, that's a weird way to phrase it. I really don't (laughs) like spending time with any of these people, but the reason I wanted to, for the purposes of this book, write about these people is that they were representative of, of kind of the Republican Party as a whole, right? If you wanted to know how Republicans got from the party of Reagan or W or, or whatever um, to the party of Trump, like there was no better people to look at than Matt and Mercy. They, they literally met while working together in George W. Bush's White House. He was the political director. She did something in communications, you know, compassionate conservative types. Her family's from Cuba, and she talked about, you know, legal immigration being great for the country, and at first believing that Trump's, you know, anti-immigration rhetoric was going to ruin him. And by the time Trump is the nominee, these guys are, like, fully on board. They have five daughters, and even after the Access Hollywood tape broke, they went, they split a bottle of wine in their country house to decide whether they wanted to continue supporting him, and ultimately decided, yeah, like, he's better than, than Hillary Clinton He's going to make our lives better. Like we're all in on Trump and their loyalty paid off. They got so rich. They bought the largest house on mansion drive in the town that they <laughs> live in. Like they hung a giant Trump flag outside of their house on a crane just to show how supportive they were of him. And, you know, this is, this is how it happens. You, this loyalty to Trump, uh, can make Republicans financially successful or just they they got to win the White House. Winning is important. This tribalism that comes with winning. I spent time with them and I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of why the Republican Party looked the way it did, um, you know, at this time. I think this, this applies to them. You read a lot about ideological malleability that's pervasive in Washington. And obviously it's not a new phenomenon. It's certainly gotten worse, I think. What do you think that that evolution is born out of? Is it as simple as just craven opportunism? I think that for different people, um, there's different reasons, right? And and I think all uh, for a lot of people, it's unclear even to them sometimes, right? So I think, yes, right. opportunism is a huge part of it. And I think that can often be the kind of initial reason. It's like, well, our lives will be better. We can make more money. Matt's lobbying firm, you know, went through the roof because of his connections to Trump. Like that is valuable, like literally valuable. Um, I think, you know, they do have ideological beliefs, you know, they're probably more conservative than, than, um, (laughs) than they are, 
uh, progressive. They're not going to support right. Bernie Sanders, even if Bernie Sanders was going to, you know, help them make more money, presumably, although maybe who knows. Um, <laughs> but the other thing that happens is once you like become part of this team and people start attacking you for it and attacking your guy, I think there's this bunker mentality where people kind of dig in and they maybe even convince themselves that, um, you know, that, that their belief system is not being compromised here, that no, we are fighting right. the good fight. This is the bad guys are after us. So clearly we are fighting the right fight. I, I remember profiling George Conway and Kellyanne Conway for the Washington post, you know, spent time as their a classic profile, I should add. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a weird, it was a weird time. Um, <laughs> and, you know, George would tell me that like, in some ways he couldn't be mad at Kellyanne for her love for Trump because she felt, he felt like she had like fallen into a cult basically where right. maybe she didn't believe this stuff when she first got there. But then, you know, she was on this team where everybody was getting attacked all the time. She dug in and it, her, her mind made her believe that she now believed all of this stuff. I, you know, look, I, I don't want to get too much into their marriage that, that is now no longer, I believe, but it's the kind of thing that I can, I can imagine being true where you go in for one reason, but once you're there, uh, you become fully bought in. I think that that's reflective of the supporters too, you know, not just the, the high profile supporters, but, you know, all the way down to the voters. Like there was a certain extent to which they felt like they were getting screamed at by the media for supporting someone and decided that they weren't going to cower to basically getting shamed for supporting this guy. And yeah. that, that just was a, almost a vicious spiral. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, there's there's some people who Donald Trump believes all the things that they believed, and now they finally had permission to say some of the things right. that they feel like they had permission to say. So I think a lot of folks, you know, didn't change because of Trump, but were able to be more vocal um, mm. and, you know, finally say, oh, yes, this is the stuff I, I always believed, but I would get run out of polite society for saying it. Now the president's saying it, I can. And yeah. I think others, yeah. Um, probably don't love all parts of Donald Trump, but, uh, you know, it's like, look, I'll, I'll admit something here. I am a new England Patriots fan. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm now I'm sure I'll, I'll lose, you know, plenty of potential <laughs> book buyers with that. Yeah, when, yeah. when Tom Brady, uh, almost definitely cheated at the time I was like dug in. I was like, you know what? Screw these guys. Like I'm going <laughs> to win the Super Bowl anyway. Like it makes you, it makes you defend yeah, kind of indefensible stuff for sure. That guy was deflating footballs. Like, why wouldn't he? And and I think that you know this sports to politics thing can sometimes be a little too simplistic. But there's something to be said about what you're willing to defend when it's your guy, when it's your team. Yeah, right. Do you know uh, if the Schlapp Empire is in peril now? He's obviously had some personal troubles. CPAC is always a bit of a uh, a mess. There's always some bad headlines coming out of there. Yeah, it's definitely imperiled. Um, right. He, uh, among other things, has been accused of uh, sexual misconduct, groping, allegedly groping a uh, male staffer uh, on the Herschel Walker campaign at the end of, of the midterms. Um, you know, Donald Trump has come to his support in a way after that. After, you know, one of the first events that MatchLab had uh, was a CPAC event at Mar-a-Lago and Donald Trump came and stood by his side, which was kind of this perfect circle moment of, you know, MatchLab had it stood by Trump uh, when a lot of people wouldn't after access Hollywood, access now, Hollywood. Right? right. And now Trump was standing beside him after his allegations. Um, 
that there's like been, you know, discussion about uh, financial impropriety at, at ACU, the, the organization mm-hmm. he runs and CPAC, the, the conference that he hosts. Um, it just doesn't look great for him right now. But I kind of believe that his value to the Republican Party is in a lot of ways connected to Donald Trump. If Trump becomes the nominee, if he becomes president, if Trump still believes Matt is a loyal soldier and like wants him to be part of, of, you know, team Trump, part of the world, people are willing to overlook a lot of stuff when you're in power. Uh, if Trump disappears and, you know, Matt has no connection to the, the, the heads of the Republican party, suddenly his value is gone. And, uh, a lot of his problems look a lot worse. Right. Do you foresee Washington getting even weirder if Trump gets elected to get again? Because I feel like when he first came into power in 20, 16, he had a fairly normal Republican administration, at least like staffer wise. And he's kind of blown through all of those staffers. Like we, we could get an even weirder circus coming to Washington in 2024. For sure. We could. I mean, also a lot of these people who said they could never support Trump again and think he's a maniac and blah, 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 could easily just decide, all right, fine, I'll go work for him again. Right. Like it was shocking after January 6, how quickly it went from like I was watching Fox that day and the condemnations were like never again. You know, yeah. Lindsey Graham said, I'm, uh, I'm done. And within days had completely flipped. Yeah. So I it, mean, it, I was surprised too, but like I, I shouldn't have been. We shouldn't have been. Like <laughs> yeah. Marco Rubio, you know, in 2016 was saying that he like was a maniac who shouldn't be trusted with the nuclear codes or, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham was, you know, being all folksy about it, but basically saying the same stuff. And, right. and then all these guys, they just become supporter i mean ted cruz remember when he did that whole kind of make-believe point at the camera i'm angry at you for calling my wife ugly thing and like, now it has completely come around exactly i mean they, right. they these people come around and how again how i wouldn't make a prediction good. about it because predictions are often right, right but like it doesn't really seem like a prediction to say that the republican party would would you know be loyal to trump going mm-hmm. forward because they have been how pervasive do you think that is i mean when you when you are, are dealing with maybe, you know, some of the lesser known operatives in DC, is the party fully diehard Trump or is a lot of it, you know, will they privately condemn Trump and his behavior, but publicly support him? Yeah, I think it's a lot of that. I mean, not not everyone would make him the first choice, I don't think. Right. Um, It's not diehard supporters. I think there's a lot of folks who'd say, I'd rather not have a multiple times indicted guy running, uh, you know, who, I uh, can't even get through a Fox News interview with Brett Baer without, um, you know, stepping on his own legislation and, you know, contradicting himself and, and kind of looking foolish. I think a lot of people would rather not have that. But I mean, he's the, the front runner. And if nobody wants to condemn the front runner, because if he ends up winning the nomination, like that's their guy, that's their captain. And I, I think a lot of them will fall in line. So on the flip side, you examine several pretty fascinating liberal characters. Tell us about Sean McElwee, who's a really interesting one. Yeah, he was, uh, he's sort of the heart of the book in a lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. He was a democratic pollster, kind of rising star pollster, ran an organization called Data for Progress, um, which was like, you know, becoming one of the hotshot polling groups in Washington, uh, was working for John Fetterman's campaign. Like there's no bigger campaign in the last election than the Fetterman campaign. And was having his his polls being you know retweeted by the White House. He did a lot of polling on legislation that that uh, Ron Klain loved, and you know he was part of the kind of progressive uh, I don't know communications apparatus basically. 
And uh, he was interesting to me at first because like Matt Schlapp, he was this kind of Washington character who was very good at changing his stripes. He um, in 2018 was kind of a Bernie bro type guy who would host these dirtbag left happy hours. And I remember in, in I'm getting, in, getting invited to one of the, the East village, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, yeah. The blue and the gold bar, right. Which uh, at the time sounded like the worst possible way to spend an evening. Well, people would hang there. I mean, I never went, but like, <laughs> you know, not only would all these kind of online personalities go there and yeah, it was a big deal. wear his, his Bernie Sanders hat or his Karl Marx shirt and, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand would show up or, mm. or Pete Buttigieg, AOC was, you know, would go there. He was kind of an early adopter of AOC and uh, helped popularize the term abolish ice and was this kind of lefty presence. But by the time Biden becomes president, he is tacked, tacked totally to the center. Still, you know, considers himself a progressive, but tactically uh, he wants to, instead of saying, you know, abolish ICE, he's the guy who's out there saying, please don't say defund the police anymore. Right. Like, let's Embracing stop. Embracing popularism. Right, exactly. He and David Shore, two uh, Democratic consultants kind of, you know, associated with this, with this move. Um and I spent a bunch of time with him uh, for that reason, but then ended up, you know, kind of being blown away by what I was seeing behind closed doors, uh, which was mainly going to his poker nights and and seeing that his biggest bets at poker were not on the cards, <laughs> but on politics. Yeah. So t- t- tell us about that. That's that's really the most fascinating thing about this guy. Is yeah, it was crazy to me. Uh, um, <laughs> he, you know, he's a pollster. He conducts polls, um, or at least has his team conduct polls, and. He was placing bets, you know, relatively big bets, sometimes for thousands of dollars um, online, using the website Predicted or with friends, uh, using spreadsheets or eventually using crypto exchanges once uh, he was looking for new ways to gamble. Uh, And he's kind of a degenerate gambler, uh, gambling on politics. And sometimes he would bet on races that he worked on. And sometimes he would bet against clients that he had, including betting against John Fetterman, which really pissed off the Fetterman team when they found out about that. Which um, is, you know, it's one thing, you know, I, I, I'm never going to, you know, cast aspersions on anyone who's into gambling and particularly political gambling. It sounds, sounds exciting. It sounds fun. But if to do that, when you are actively part working for or involved in any way with a campaign and particularly to bet against it, I, it just blew my mind to hear that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like sports betting, right? It's okay to go online, uh, you know, and, and bet on on a baseball game or a football game. But if you're the coach of the team or you play on the team, if you're Pete Rose, like it's kind of unforgivable. He right. had a, he had a whole theory about it. You know, he was open about this. This was not. This was one of his. You know, the same way Trump would kind of do some of his scandalous behavior out in the open, and people would, you know, have a harder time deciding if it was a scandal or not. He, he was open about his gambling. He would talk about it in front of me. He showed me his spreadsheets. He, you know, would end conference calls with other organizations asking if anyone wanted to make bets with him. He encouraged (laughs) his staff to bet. He gave them money to bet on elections. This is a young staff of people who never made political bets in their life, who all of a sudden are kind of being brought into his um, gambling orbit. And and he had a theory, which was like, this is going to make me a better pollster, a better consultant. It'll make you a better pollster and a better consultant. If you put your money where your mouth is, uh, if you uh, if you win, like you can learn lessons from that, and more importantly, if you lose, you know that it's harder to forget that lesson. But of course, he lost the John Fetterman bet. He lost the Fetterman bet. He lost most of the bets he showed me. 
You know, he was very uh, down on the Democratic chances of, you know, maintaining the Senate or holding as many seats as they did in the House. He really thought it was going to be one of these red waves that a lot of people predicted. And between, you know, being wrong about things, between that and the gambling coming out more and more into the press, he had connections to Sam Bankman-Fried via his brother, Gabe Bankman-Fried, who he worked for. Mm. Uh, all that stuff at the end of the year, it's just like, I, you know, I couldn't have anticipated such a dramatic end of the year for one of my characters. But all that stuff mixed together really created this, you know, this stew uh, <laughs> that that he probably was unhappy about having cooked by the end of the year. But like all Washington D.C. operatives who know how to how to shed their skin, I should say, there's there's probably a good chance that he makes a comeback, just like Matt Schlapp, right? I, I wouldn't uh, be surprised. You know, like yeah. this is a city of second chances. Um, it was a very dramatic downfall for him. I, I'll, I'll leave it to to listeners to <laughs> to read about it in the book. Mm. Um, yep. But sure, I mean. Uh, somebody once compared being a pollster uh, to me uh, to being like an NBA coach where once you've made it to the NBA, even if you have a bunch of really horrible seasons, like there's always a job for you, right? Like right. You made it to a certain level. People see you as a guy who made it to that level. You're not going to be bounced from that level anytime soon. You might not get the, the top job on the top team, but like you can stick around and eventually find your way back. I think there's a chance that, yeah, uh, Sean reached NBA coach level and and we'll see if he gets to stick around. Fascinating. We obviously at Mediaite, we focus on the media. We have a particular focus on cable news. And I wanted to get your thoughts on what role you think cable news, which is obviously an industry that is in, in something of a decline over the, over the next couple of years, it, what role that plays in Washington. And obviously, it, cable news really got revived thanks to Donald Trump's 2016 campaign and still remains this big influential presence in Washington, D.C. You have members of Congress who spend more time on Fox or MSNBC than doing anything else. You know, not to mention Matt Schlapp, who's practically incubated in the green room. Do you find cable news to be a particularly important figure in in the story that you were trying to tell with this book? Yeah, I mean, it has a completely outsized role in Washington. I mean, people think it, that like the entire country watch cable news. Right. Uh, if, if you're like, if you're in Washington, D.C., that's how they treat cable as if like every one of their constituents must be watching the set um, of morning joe is america that people think that way uh, right and i you know the numbers do not bear that out i mean mm-hmm. sure sometimes things go viral i guess and it can find its way to people in other in other mediums uh but yeah people like act i think people act as if a camera is always on it, it kind of sucks to be a political journalist uh feature writer profile writer because it does sometimes feel like i'm hanging out and watching and around these people who always feel like the camera is on them and are practiced and like reading lines. And, you know, ever since probably ever since C-SPAN cameras got, got flicked on the place has become very performative. And I think a lot of that is because of cable. Um, And, you know, you can't let your guard down because if you go on cable and act a certain way and then, you know, are spotted by a journalist or, you know, somebody with a camera later and they tweet out a video of you acting a different way, it takes away the value of your, of your TV persona. So people right. kind of stay in their TV persona as long as they possibly can. And those TV personas are incredibly valuable because it's, if you leave politics, like I can't, you know, can't say how many former members of the Trump administration now work at Fox News. You know, Kellyanne Conway was guest hosted an episode of Sean Hannity a couple months ago. And so I think people really value that. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, building a brand is, is valuable. I mean, can it also help with legislation and stuff like that? Sure. Probably. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it's anyone's top goal necessarily, but, um, you know, yeah, there's a, there's a whole ecosystem out there of people, um, who, who know where every camera is. So one of the reasons I think I love your work so much, and it's such an entertaining read this book and your writing for the Washington post is that you really focus on these personalities and you have a knack for finding strange ones and, and telling their stories in really vivid ways. How do you find these characters? Is there like a phone book somewhere of Washington weirdos with outsized power? <laughs> Honestly, it's very hard um, in some ways, right? Because I wanted to make sure that everyone in this book was interesting, right? Like this is mm. a book that is not supposed to read like a textbook. Like you're supposed to read this book and enjoy it. Even if at the end you're like, holy shit, that was kind of dark. <laughs> um, so finding people that are both interesting, but also important or somehow representative of a bigger story or connected to the main story who have a dramatic arc, that was very hard. And so one of the things I had to do was cast a much wider net than even ended up in the book. A lot of people I spent time with, I had to cut from the book because they didn't end up having a dramatic arc or they ended up not being as important to the main story as I thought they would be. Or other people had more dramatic endings to the year than I could have anticipated and it took up more space, right? So a lot of it is just making sure that I'm talking to as many people as I as I can while also figuring out how to narrow it down eventually. And the other thing is like, I think a lot of people in Washington focus on the same things, right? It's like, the same few people get profiled, the same major figures, um, Kevin McCarthy profiles and, uh, you know, uh, Ron Klain profiles or, and these are all important, right? I'm not, this is not to cast aspersions at all on, on that, on that journalism, but I am just interested in finding people who don't get written about as much. And in some ways I, it's hard because you have to find them, but in other ways it's easy because nobody else is looking for them. Right. Mm, And so, Writing this book, it was a, it, it was a, I took a leap of faith that people would want to read about people that they hadn't heard of, you know, like I thought of it as like the book, thank you for smoking, where these are a bunch of, you know, lobbyists and right. uh, kind of, uh, subterranean creatures, but they are actually the people that make Washington work. They're the people who have the real human drama, the real human experiences, and are also willing to be open about it in, in weird and fascinating and, uh, surprising ways. And so I don't know, just kind of keeping, keeping your eye out for people who have interesting stories and are willing to, to tell them. I, I just don't know if everybody has their antenna up for the, for that kind of thing. Knowing that what you're used to doing is reporting features for the Washington post. What was your writing process? Like, are you approaching each chapter, like a fresh news story that you'd be writing in the, in, in the post? I'm, I'm always curious to know how a reporter who usually does newspaper reporting would, would approach doing a book for the first time. Yeah, it was so hard. I mean, especially because, (laughs) because uh, as I started out, I didn't know how it was going to end, right? This is not a biography of a long figure where I know the beginning, middle and end before I even start writing. Uh, I couldn't possibly know how this book was going to end until it ended. And then I had to finish it like, you know, very quickly thereafter. Um, So at first I just thought about it like, okay, I'm going to write a bunch of profiles. Mm. um, And that was just, to get me going, you know, how would I report it? How would I, you know, structure these profiles as if they were going in the, in the style section of the Washington post or the New Yorker or wherever else. Um, and then I got to the point where I was like, well, this 
can't be how the book goes. I don't want this to be a book that's just a bunch of random profiles where you read one and then another and another. Right, almost like, like a collection of essays. Right, which would have been a fine book. In a, you know, maybe that would have been easier, certainly. <laughs> um, but what I wanted was for it to feel like, you know, all part of a whole. And not all these characters interact and not all of them, you know, are connected to each other directly. And so I needed to figure out a way to kind of weave it all together. And ultimately, like the big advice I got was from uh, an editor who was just like, keep the chapter short. You know, if you can just write a bunch of short chapters and kind of weave them together and connect the people who are connected and remind people where you are, um, it's no longer a, a, a 12 long profiles. It's just a bunch of little moments that uh, you can kind of bring people into these scenes and you can tell them what it all means and you can kind of guide people through the year and, and having that in like widget form ultimately made it easier not to get like too technical about it, but there was, no, a, I love it. There was a writing, um, I don't know, app that I used called Scrivener where mm-hmm. you could cut everything up into almost like note cards and move it around. So instead of writing in Microsoft wow. word where it was all like one long thing and I'd have to search and figure out where I was, I could have like, 500 note cards and just move things around until it felt like a book. It was kind of cool. It was like, a Oh, puzzle. that's great. That I, I imagine that that would be very helpful for feature writing too. You know, yeah, no, not, I, I now use it. Uh, you know, it, it was advice given to me. I'll give a shout out to Molly ball. Um, the Molly great, ball, great, um, you know, political journalist. She advised me on this and like, it was the best advice I got from anybody, honestly. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, I'll, I'll look into it. Yeah. I was writing a, a like a 2,500 word feature recently and I, and like the, reorganizing it was a nightmare once I realized that I had jotted down all my notes and it was in completely the wrong order. Oh yeah. No. And this um, has imagine own, for a book. It's, that's, it's, and it's got its own notes section. I mean, really, honestly, it's so cool. Like, and I'm not, I'm not paid to say this. You're not sponsored. By <laughs> no, I'm not. A sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, as you noted, the book at some points kind of feels like it can paint a fairly grim portrait of, of Washington right now. Sometimes I almost felt like I was reading like a Mike Allen newsletter. If it was stripped of all the chirpy spin. <laughs> and was actually just being honest about like how kind of un- unseemly this all is. Are you optimistic about the future of Washington? I don't want you to predict anything, but do you feel like at some point that there could be a break in the fever that we've almost had since 2016? I mean, it's hard, it's hard to be fully optimistic about anything right now because it's sort of a pessimistic time, but right. certainly I, there are parts of this book and parts of my experience reporting on Washington that do give me some optimism And a lot of it, not to sound like an old guy, you know, but a lot of it is like the young people that continue to come to Washington and do just the work. You know, they come to the Hill, they go to think tanks, they go even running campaigns and working on campaigns, you know, um, they just put in long, grueling hours and they make very little money and the -hmm. jobs suck and uh, the experience can be awful. This also sounds dark and like I'm like I'm not getting to some optimism here. But the point is they do this oftentimes for idealistic reasons and that hasn't changed. And if it has changed since the Trump years, I think it's just that more people are inclined to come and fight for what they believe in. And look, I think that their jobs need to become better. I think the pay probably needs to come up and uh, there's unionization efforts on the Hill. That's just kind of interesting to look at. And, um, you know, if these jobs can become better and the people keep coming in to do them, sure, why not be optimistic? I mean, more people come to Washington to do good work than come here to become famous or rich. Like, uh, as I've said before, like, if you want to be rich, like, you go go to New York. Like, if you want to be famous, mm-hmm. go to Hollywood. Most people aren't coming here uh, for that. They're coming here because they believe in something. Ben Terrace, thanks so much for coming on the show. The book is The Big Break. 
really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Ben Terrace on Mediaite.com.